with a reading from Psalm 119, uh, verse 97, if you want to turn there in your Bible. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Let us start in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us this time that we could focus our attention on your written word, that we would be drawn as a body closer to you through our discussion, through the ministry of your spirit, and by the person and work of your beloved son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So welcome to lesson three of our series, A Time for Confidence, Trusting God in a Post-Christian Society. Uh, as a reminder for some and maybe an introduction to others, uh, this is Dr. Stephen Nichols. He is the author of our book again. Um, He's written this book, A Time for Confidence. Uh, Dr. Stephen Nichols is the president of Reformation Bible College, chief academic officer for Ligonier Ministries, a Ligonier Ministries teaching fellow. He's authored or edited over 20 books and hosts the podcast, Five Minutes in Church History and Open Book. He earned his PhD from Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. So this is our schedule that we've been working through. Uh, we've been given an introduction to a time for confidence in lesson one. And uh, last week we went through lesson two, which was our confidence in God. In lesson one, we were reminded that we are sinners by nature and by nature respond in a sinful way to this fallen world. I was wondering if anybody could throw out an idea about what we gained uh, in lesson two last week. What was the major, the major point of the of the lesson? Uh, confidence in God. Go ahead and throw something out. <laughs> Past faithfulness? Yes, so Chance asked us to reflect on those attributes of God that we had previously been exposed to, and as, as he read um, through uh, parts of Scripture. Um, I guess I, I, would summarize, I would summarize the whole lesson as um, a reminding uh, that our God is immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will. And the point of the, point of the lesson was that if we can't find our confidence in him, then we won't find our confidence anywhere else. Um, lesson three is titled uh, Confidence in the Bible. Uh, so, 
Dr. Nichols starts off lesson three with a couple of reminders of the state of our current culture. The first one we'll look at is a New York Times op-ed from Frank Brunei. Might be a familiar face. Uh, so on April 3rd, 2015, Frank Brunei sounded off on bigotry, the Bible, and the lessons of Indiana. Referencing the drama that accompanied the passing of Indiana's Religious Freedom Restoration Act, Brunei contended that to take a position that condemns certain lifestyles and sexual orientations prioritizes scattered passages of ancient texts over all that has been learned since. As if time had stood still, as if the ad advances of science and knowledge meant nothing. Brunei continued his attempt to make the case that we know that we now know much better than the ancients, so much better than the biblical authors, saying the position that would condemn certain sexual orientations elevates unthinking obeisance above intelligent observance, above the evidence in front of you, because if you look honestly at gay, lesbian, and bisexual people, is to see that we're the same magnificent riddles as everyone else no more, no less flawed, no more or less dignified. The next reminder that Dr. Nichols gave us was a, or is a Golden Globe winning series launched in 2014 by Amazon Studios. <clears throat> this show is called Transparent. It presents the mainstreaming of gender transformation. The family of a main character realizes that their dad was not always a dad. The show itself represents the phenomenon of art imitating reality. Jill Soloway, the show's creator and producer, has a transgender father. She used a transformative action program in hiring for the show, giving preference to transgender individuals. But in the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible, we read the words, male and female, he created them. That's from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. The transgender revolution is in fact not a revolution, but a rebellion, a rebellion against the very clear teaching of scripture and the very nature of the universe. Dr. Nichols says that gender is not a construct, it is a reality. But while these particular attacks are new, attacks on the Bible are nothing new. Might have seen a figure like this one before. At the beginning of the 20th century, the challenge came from the sciences. Charles Darwin's view of origins ruled. His view stated, or first started washing ashore in the United States in the late 1800s. The Old Testament scholars thought Darwin offered a better explanation of the universe than the opening chapters of Genesis did. Darwinism spread quickly by 1925, the year of the famous Scopes trial, Darwinism had won out among the cultural elites in America. A culture that thinks it knows better than the Bible surrounds us now. Many loud voices have chimed in to call for giving up altogether on this ancient book that is so out of step with life in the 21st century. But Dr. Nichols says that there is another front of attack on the Bible at the dawn of the 21st century, or the 20th century. I don't know if you can make out that picture right there. That's Billy Sunday. One of the, one of the benefits of uh, having a pastor with a, uh, with a cane is that we don't have to worry about uh, acrobatic preaching. <laughs> 
<laughs> if, uh, if Darwin and evolution came from without, this attack came from within, from the religious establishment. In the 1910s, Billy Sunday, the former professional baseball player turned fiery evangelist, held massive crusades across America's cities. He was known for his acrobatic preaching. In fact, in some moments, Sunday could even leap from the platform onto the top of the pulpit. He would get right up on the edge of the platform and he would thunder, turn hell upside down, and you know what's stamped on the bottom? Made in Germany. It was, time, it was the time of World War I, and the world was arrayed against Germany. But that's not entirely what Sunday meant. What Sunday meant was the topic of higher criticism. This figure is intended to show the descent of modernists. And I don't know if everybody can read it, but... It's the descent from Christianity to atheism, where we identify that the Bible is uh, not infallible at first, and then that man was not made in God's image, that miracles don't exist, then denying the virgin birth, and then denying the deity of Christ, denying his atoning sacrifice, his resurrection, then falling into agnosticism, and finally atheism. Dr. Nichols explains that higher criticism came from English and German scholars. But the German scholars of the 19th century receive all of the attention. First, higher critics examined and scrutinized the Pentateuch, challenging Mosaic authorship. When they finished their critical, historical, and philological investigations, they reached the conclusion that the Pentateuch expressed man's sense of the divine only. It was not a divinely inspired word from God to man. Higher critics also turned to examine Isaiah and again discovered a different account than was previously held. These scholars concluded that Isaiah is history and not prophecy. Then came the time to examine the Gospels. This began what is known as the quest for the historical Jesus. There are two Jesuses in the final form of the four Gospels, according to this quest. One Jesus is the Jesus of faith, who is the embellished Jesus. And the other is the Jesus of history, who is the Jesus that actually existed. So where do these ideas come from? Dr. Nichols explains that in our day, attacks continue in the social sciences. The gurus on human identity and human nature, sociologists, cultural anthropologists, and cultural studies experts line up to tell us how to best think of ourselves, our identity, and our sexuality. Jill Soloway, the creator and producer of the show Transparent that we looked at earlier, had her first epiphany regarding transgender issues in a culture studies class while attending an undergraduate at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Ideas have consequences, and Dr. Nichols says bad ideas have bad consequences. But at the turn of the 20th century, the sciences supposedly knew better than the Bible. Now the social sciences supposedly also know better than the Bible. Now let's turn to the biblical account. <clears throat> Paul knew challenges to God's word. In order to steal his young, his young churches and their congregants, he reminded them of what they were reading when they read the Bible. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul offers one of the most succinct statements on the doctrine of Scripture. Paul loved the Thessalonian church. He had some issues with some of the 
other churches that he had planted, as you might remember from our uh, series that we're going through on Corinthians, right, on the Corinthian church right now. But when you read his epistles to the Thessalonians, you get a sense of his genuine mutual love that Paul and the church had for each other. He likens his time with them to a father's being with his children. Paul gave his very life to the believers in Thessalonica for the establishment of the church. When Paul remembers his time there, his fond memories come back. Then, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men. And this was the environment that he was preaching in. In the, 21st, or in the first century, there were a lot of words of men. The Greco-Roman world was rife with philosophers who peddled their philosophies. They would hustle into town with their oratorical skill and would set up on a porch in a public square and they would wow the crowd with a new idea or some new application of an idea. There were plenty of words of men in Paul's day. These were the Romans with their Greek heritage. They had Socrates, they had Plato, and Aristotle. They had Homer, Herodotus, and Seneca. They had Euclid and Archimedes. They loved novel ideas, new systems of thought. They debated, they shot down old ideas. They were always looking to the promise of something new. They prized philosophers, poets, scientists, and playwrights. They reveled in the words of men. But Christians look at scripture as something entirely different. Dr. Nichols walks us through a couple of the figures from church history, starting with Martin Luther. Martin Luther once said that the word of God assaults us. It takes off the rough edges. It cuts away and hones us to God's desired shape. We are cast in the image of the first man, Adam. We are being refashioned after the image of the last man. We are being conformed to his image. Luther was right. The word of God assaults us. Luther quickly added, however, that the word of God also comforts us. Whether assaulting or comforting, the word of God is at work in shaping and forming us. This is God's word. We can put our confidence in it because it's God's word to us. It's not a human construct. It's not some philosophy that's going to pass. It abides through the ages. To put the matter differently, the Bible is the only book powerful enough to change lives. And it's powerful enough because it really is the word of God. Next Dr. Nichols introduces us to the character of Peter Martyr Vermili. The G is silent. He, he was born in Florence and came under the influence of the writings of the Reformers. He converted and fled. He spent time in the Reformation cities of Switzerland before being invited to Cambridge. He also served at Oxford and then at Zurich. He was a staunch defender of the authority of Scripture. Vermeule said that the authority of Scripture is established by two Latin words, Dominus Dixit, translated as, Thus says the Lord. This is the starting point of our doctrine of Scripture. When we hear, Thus says the Lord, we submit and obey. The Bible is the Word of God. 
Maybe another familiar portrait. The English academic world of Jonathan Edwards was enthralled with the new thinking of the Enlightenment. The deists ruled. They believed that God created the world and then backed away. And now he lets it run along all on its own. They rejected the idea that God reveals his will in his word. They rejected the doctrine of the incarnation and the deity of Christ. They rejected the possibility, let alone to the actual occurrence of miracles, or let alone the actual occurrence of miracles. They had come of age. The Enlightenment thinkers and the deists were far too sophisticated to submit to some ancient book. Edwards saw how his congregation could be easily led astray by, by the wrong pursuits. He saw how worldliness crouched at the door, ready to overtake those who so willingly gave in. So he responded to his culture and to his congregation. He preached sermons, he wrote books, all defending the Bible. So how ought we think about God's word? Dr. Nichols introduces the comparison with the practice of bloodletting. Suppose we become advocates of the medical practice of bloodletting. Dr. Nichols explains that this was rather popular even into the 18th century. If we practiced bloodletting in that era, no one would think anything of it. But if a doctor were to propose a return to this very flawed medical practice, he would rightfully be drummed out, if not prosecuted. Bloodletting was an ideology. And like all ideologies, it came and it went. Systems of thought, ideologies, views, they all come and go. Some are even useful and helpful, but they have their day and then they pass. But when we open our Bibles, we are engaging something entirely different. We are not listening to the words of ancient men from some quaint faraway place and time. We are reading the very words of God. We can't simply ignore or pass over them or flat out reject them. The Bible, because it is out of step with our day, how ought we to think about God's word then? I wanted to spend some time reflecting on how uh, scripture is addressed in the Westminster Confession of Faith. This can be a more interactive time of our meeting this morning. Um, the Westminster Confession of Faith lays out a, a number of attributes of Scripture. And these sections of the Westminster Confession are uh, in pretty much complete alignment with the London Baptist Confession of Faith as well. The first attribute that we come to uh, with regard to how Christians have historically looked at Scripture is, a, is the idea that Holy Scripture is authoritative, which we've already been introduced to a little bit. So what does it mean? Let me read, actually, let me read through this first paragraph and then ask the question, why does Scripture have authority? The authority of Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore it is to be received because it is the word of God. So why, why do you guys think that scripture has authority? because of its author. So we, we see here that it's holy upon God and it is his word. 
because it is God's word, then it carries with it a certain authority. Just like we had referenced before in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. So what does scripture's authority mean for us? As creatures. We ought to take it to heart, trust it, and obey it. Okay. So it, because, because uh, scripture is God's word, the creator, our creator is speaking to us in it, then it demands a response, right? It's, it's, not, it's not something that we can uh, um, not deal with. And even by ignoring scripture, you know, we are still responding to it by ignoring it. Um, it is manifest to us. So what is then the necessary response as laid out in this chapter? What is the response that scripture demands of us? Confidence? Obedience? Mm -hmm. We spend time. The, uh, we have that on the first line there that it ought to be believed and it ought to be obeyed. ought to be received. Mm -hmm. So the scripture is authoritative for both, for, for all that it demands. We have scripture being authorita authoritative that it ought to be believed and that it's authoritative that it ought to be obeyed. So how ought the authority of scripture to demand obedience? Um, how ought we see the, the demand of scripture in obedience uh, when we relate that to the unbelieving world? Um, does, does scripture demand obedience to an unbelieving world? Sometimes the unbelieving world So there's a conflict. Well, let me, let me ask the question in a, a little bit different way. Um, in, in evangelism, should we just focus on belief or should we also focus on obedience? Well, I think belief would become before obedience. Okay. Focus on the author. So if I can, let me. So I'm seeing if I could flip quickly to John chapter 20, verse 31. I had that written down here, um, starting in verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So there's a certain sense in which the gospel reaches us and redeems us from the inside out, right? Um, there, is a, there is a salvation, sanctification distinction there. But let's also look at, um, is there any way that we can see the gospel as a call to obedience. Tom? Right, so is, but does the gospel contain within it a call to obedience as well? Or just a call to a belief? The idea that the authority of scripture does not depend on the testimony of any man is really a, th is a throwback to the formal cause of the Reformation. But I, I'm wondering if you guys think if it's still relevant for today.
So in our culture today, do we run into this, uh, but in a different way, that that we see uh, um, that we might question the authority of Scripture because of the testimony of man or because of the testimony of a church? Are there challenges to the authority of God's word? Right. So this. This topic is really still relevant today, right? It's, so we see, <clears throat> rather than looking to the church, people are looking at things like science or, or archaeology or, you know, their favorite blogger, you know, to, to back or to give scripture its authority. And if, and if their culture doesn't or their, you know, their evidence that they're looking for outside of the Bible is not supporting what the Bible says, then they would doubt its uh, Authority. Go ahead. Right. And a lot of times those are external sources that we're looking to, uh, that we by default look to try to give the Bible its authority, or sometimes those external sources are just kind of um, giving our own personal feelings validation, and we look for those external sources that validate our, our own opinions. Go ahead, Bobby. So, going on to the next paragraph about the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture, we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to an high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God. The full discovery of it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Yet, Notwithstanding our full persuasion of the assurance of infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. So if the Bible is the word of God, then why don't people receive it as God's word? So we cannot, uh, um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a false view, or it's, it's rationalism, really, to think that we can uh, receive God's truth without the Holy Spirit. Um, and we don't receive it because, you know, we, we are a fallen race. Um, by nature, we are haters of the truth. So as we, talk, we just mentioned, uh, my next question I wanted to ask was, uh, what or who is the primary witness of the Holy Spirit, or of the authority of Scripture? And we see in the last line there that the Holy Spirit bears witness. Um, so, does the Holy Spirit work apart from God's Word? You're good at trick questions. Yeah. Because this can go in a bad direction. Does, what? Go ahead. So that that's replacing Christianity with uh, moralism, then. Exactly. Right. Okay. So the question, though, is really like, um, does the Holy is there is there, can we draw a distinction between the work of the Holy Spirit and and the um, and the role of God's word. Um, no?
So, so do we have a word which talks about uninformed? Uh, what do we call it when it's uninformed? When there, when we have the whole, when we claim to have the Holy Spirit without the Word? So we. Like revelation, like special revelation. Right, so we like put that into the category of like mysticism or something like that, you know. That, uh, um, or, or we look at it like, uh, what is the distinction between what we call the role of the Holy Spirit, um, and they say bearing witness to the Word, and uh, what uh, uh, Mormons how how they might look at uh, um, the. The, the warm, fuzzy feeling that they get in their bosom whenever they read um, the Book of Mormon. Um, there's, uh, it's, it's dangerous. It's dangerous whenever we start separating um, the action of the Holy Spirit uh, from uh, the Word of God. Um, so, and even, even in cases when, uh, I, think, I think we can say, we can rightfully also say that sometimes we spend time apart from God's word. And the Holy Spirit also moves on us, drawing us back to God's word. So um, there's an interaction between the Holy Spirit and God's word. One, one he, he opens our eyes to receive it, but also gives us a yearning for it as well in its absence. Um, so if you can look up there, I don't know if you can see, but... Uh, do you see any other witnesses of the authority of Scripture mentioned in this paragraph besides the primary one, which was the Holy Spirit? <clears throat> so we have a lot of words underlined up there, um, but really all of those words, they might fit into the category of what some people might say call the attributes of the um, Holy Scripture, um, efficacy, majesty, consent uh, of all the parts, scope of the whole. Um, so the, the, second, the second one was the scripture's excellency. Um, excellencies is kind of underlined up there. Um, but I wonder, could, could you think of an idea why we would not call all of these things like the, the, the primary witnesses? Why do we hold up the role of the Holy Spirit as the as the primary witness compared to the other ones. He won't mess it up. <laughs> right. It's, it's really, let's go back to authority again, right? The, the authority of Scripture rests on God and not on man. All those other things are, we have a role in, right? So um, identifying the Holy Spirit as the primary witness is, is identifying it as, that it's, the authority rests on God. And next chapter, or the next paragraph. We have, this is about the sufficiency of Scripture, which Dr. Nichols also talked about. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word which are always to be observed. So this paragraph really points to the fact that Christians need to think logically how we approach scripture should not be, uh, it requires um, time in the word, trying to understand um, principles, um, precedents, 
um, and also things that are plainly laid out. So do you see in here the th three levels of sufficiency that are pointed out? There's a, hier there's a hierarchy here. What, what do you think, what is the top of the hierarchy? <clears throat> things that are expressly set down, right? So those are things that are explicitly stated in the Bible. What might be the next level? So, so what is good and necessary? Deduced, right? So, so we have uh, good and necessary means things that are legitimate and things that are not artificially imposed on the text, right. but they, they're derived from it. Right. Okay. In, in the whole, the whole of Scripture, you think? Right. So what's an example of something that um, is legitimate, not artificially imposed, but can be uh, derived by uh, a systematic uh, reading of Scripture? Can you think of something like that? The Trinity is a good example. Right. So you won't find the word Trinity anywhere in the Bible, but um, if you're looking at the scripture as a whole, then you can't help but arrive at that conclusion. Um, and the last level is at the bottom there, it says general, general rules. So um, when we go through 1 Corinthians, like chapters 11 through 14, um, uh, we get exposed to a lot of general rules. Um, and these are about, you know, circumstance, Christian prudence, some of those examples that we talked about before, like head coverings, meat sacrifice to idols, things like this. All right, so next one. Um, this one is about clarity, or you might have heard the word perspicuity before. And this is a, maybe a little bit of a contentious one. Um, <clears throat> all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and open in some place of Scripture or another that not only the learned but the unlearned in due, sin, or in due use of the ordinary means may attain unto sufficient understanding of them. So this is saying that Scripture is clear, and it, and it doesn't take a PhD to understand what Scripture is trying to communicate, um, at least for the important parts. Uh, those, uh, so what are, some, what are some things that are necessary to be known for salvation? Just from, just from your general understanding of Scripture, what, what are those things that are necessary for salvation? that are plain throughout all of Scripture? First, the recognition that you need. That we, are, that we are unable to save ourselves is plain in Scripture. What else? That God has provided the, the means of salvation, right? That, he, that by His grace, he, he's, that we receive and rest on, on Christ and His righteousness is plain. And everything else, I mean, everything that's uh, summarized in the Apostles' Creed, is are th these are things that are um, plainly evident in Scripture. Um, so why is it important to point out the clarity of Scripture? Why do you think it was important his historically to, to point out clarity? So, yeah, right, so this, was, this is definitely historically a taking a stance against the position of the Roman Catholic Church and because they, they acclaimed the sole authority for the interpretation of Scripture. Um, so 
If the Bible is so clear, then why are there so many opinions about what it's trying to communicate? Back to the fallen race. <laughs> so we have the sinful nature of man is, a, is one reason. Well, probably the, the uh, big picture of, uh, of why we find ourselves in that position. But can you think of any other reasons then? Why, why are there so many opinions about what scripture is trying to communicate? All right, so, so some things, you can't, you can't just open up any book of the Bible uh, without any kind of background and expect, to, expect what you're reading to be plain and obvious. Um, there, there's a certain um, need for the practice of systematic theology that, that we, we need to understand what the, the message of the Bible as a whole, and that can't be done by just opening up and reading one verse of scripture. Um, and, but I don't think that what's the point that's trying to be made here is that everything is plain to everybody, but because one, one we see that um, there are, we identify that some things are more obvious to some people than other people. And also that, but those things that are necessary to be known uh, for salvation are plain. Um, but it's, that, doesn't, that doesn't mean that we don't uh, have, that it's not, uh, it doesn't take work to draw it out though. Um, so anyway, I, I guess that's, where, where we're landing now. These are, these are, this is the theology part of what Dr. Nichols presented in this chapter as well. So we were given a little bit of the historical background of how uh, people have interacted with the authority of scripture, where that authority comes from, and also um, the challenges to that authority that are, current, that are uh, uh, present in our current uh, culture. Um, so other, other other things that uh, that contribute to the multiple opinions that people have. I mean, we have we have our own pride that gets in the way of seeing um, a right interpretation of Scripture. We have our own traditions that we carry uh, into into our reading of Scripture. We have our culture that might influence our reading of Scripture. But we all we all need to be aware that we carry this baggage with us and be open to having uh, scripture inform us rather than um, trying to work the other way around. So I'm kind of landing on this uh, quote from Martin Luther, how he looks at scripture. Uh, he says, I'll trust in God's unchanging word till soul and body sever for through all thing, or though all things shall pass away, his word shall stand forever. I pray that in this series, um, I, I, and I pray that this lesson has left you a little closer to affirming what Martin Luther was trying to communicate here in this quotation. As we look at the upcoming our upcoming time, we're going to be taking a break for two weeks, and uh, then we'll be back on January 5th learning about confidence in Christ, and Chance will be leading that discussion. So are there any follow-up follow comments or questions as we uh, get ready to break? Go ahead, Ken. But, but acknowledging that goes completely contrary to our nature, though. Everything about us wants to deny that, except for the working of the Holy Spirit in us. Go, go ahead, Tom. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, the whole premise of this book is that Christianity today is being stalked and awed mm -hmm. by the culture around us. And so there's a real need to come in and, and, and shore up our confidence. And uh, I would say, Hmm. And that we as the interadvental 
So, so there's some, there, there, it brings glory to God when his people are drawn to himself. But it also, there's also something glorifying to God when those who would reject his truth um, outright reject it as well. I mean, that's drawing, drawing that, is, is this what you're getting at to hear that there's... Um, I'm saying that we've been told in advance that this is going to be a curse. Right. Right, so there, I guess I'll let you. Yeah, I mean, it's, in Scripture, there's definitely a tight connection between our confidence and the second coming, the end, end times. So, I guess we'll we'll end on that. It looks like we're running out of time. So, thank everybody for the good good conversation.